You know, there are many images in the New Testament that are meant to help us understand who we are as the church, that are meant to to shape our identity as the people of God. For instance, in Romans 12, verses 4 and 5, and then in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, the Bible says that we are the body of Christ, that we, though many, are one body in Christ, shaping our understanding of how each one of us plays a role in carrying forth the ministry that God has entrusted to us. Revelation 19 and 21, and then in Ephesians 5, we see the Bible refer to the people of God as the body, as the bride of Christ. And that's meant to shape our perception of ourselves as we seek to be a pure people ready to receive our bridegroom when he returns. Ephesians 2, 1 Timothy 3, we see that we are a spiritual house, the temple of the living God, that the Spirit of God resides in us, that we are a meeting place for the people of God. And finally, the Bible says that we are a family. We are the family of God. According to Scripture, the people of God are a family. We see this in 2 Corinthians 6, 18 that we read earlier, where God says to us, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. Think how incredible that is. We, who were enemies of God, now consider him to be our heavenly father, and we, his sons and daughters. Matthew 12, 19, 49 to 50, Jesus speaking to his disciples, saying, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Somehow, our faith, our confession in Christ, unites us as brothers and sisters in the household of God. And this idea that we are a family is extended and further elaborated on in our text today in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And I think if we're honest, the idea that we as the church are the family of God is a challenging concept for us today. Think about it. Do you consider the people in this room to be your family? Do you think about the people that you're sitting beside today, the same way that you think about your earthly, physical family. Yes, it is true that we gather on Sundays, that we see one another for one or two hours on a Sunday, and maybe once or twice throughout the week. But I want you to hear me this morning. God desires so much more for us as a people. He desires for us to see each other as more than just people who gather on a Sunday. God desires for us as his people to have deep, abiding relationships with one another as a reflection of his character in and of himself. He is a God who exists in community, three persons in one being. He wants us to know each other deeply and to do life together. Not one hour together. Not even two hours together on a Sunday. He wants us to do life together. We are brothers and sisters. We are fathers and mothers. We are sons and daughters. Called to live in gospel-centered relationships for the glory of God. We are more than a community. We are a family. 
as the people of God. And has there ever been a more pressing time in the history of the world for us as a people to engage in deep, meaningful relationships in the church and to show those around us where the deep, meaningful relationships that they are longing for can be found. You know this to be true. People around us are longing for relationship because God made them that way. And yet, it is true that all around us, people are increasingly more lonely and they are increasingly more depressed And this is not just true of one generation, it's all generations. We talk about a lot how the younger generations are more lonely and more depressed, even though they are connected now more than ever. But it's also true of our older generations. The elderly amongst us are now lonelier than ever. It is having catastrophic effects on their health. I saw this article the other day on the, the Department of Health and Human Services website, the government department, Health and Human Services. And here's what they titled it, The Loneliness Epidemic. They're saying that loneliness has become an epidemic in the United States and specifically among older Americans. Nearly one out of three older Americans now lives alone and the health effects are mounting. Here's what they write. Loneliness and social isolation for all people can be as damaging to your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. 15 cigarettes a day. And the problem is particularly acute among seniors, especially during holidays. Two in five Americans report that they sometimes or always feel their social relationships are not meaningful, and one in five say they feel lonely or socially isolated leading to potentially life-threatening consequences. The average household size in the U.S. has declined in the past decade, leading to a 10% increase in people living alone. Over a quarter of the U.S. population, 28% of older adults now live by themselves. And that leads to the potential for loneliness. It leads to the potential for depression that comes from it. But listen to what they recommend as the antidote. The good news is that friendships, what a surprise, reduce the risk of mortality or developing certain diseases and can speed recovery in those who fall ill. Moreover, simply reaching out to lonely people can jumpstart the process of getting them to engage with their neighbors and their peers. Science is picking up on what we already know to be true. In a world of isolation, in a world of loneliness, God has made provision for us to live in relationship. He's made provision for us as His people to live as a family and to call people from their isolation into the family of God through the work of the Son, through the work of the gospel. We are God's provision for one another, created to live in community, created to live in the family of God. Now, while we do not neglect our physical family for the spiritual family, we also cannot neglect the spiritual family that God has called us to. We are a family by design, and that should affect the way that we view the church. Here's our main point today. Our commitment to the people of God should be influenced by God's declaration that we are a family. 
Our commitment to each other, our commitment to the church should be influenced by the declaration of God that we are a family. Now, let's see how Paul develops this idea that we are the family of God and the practical ministry that flows from that in 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 to 16. Here's what the Word of God says. Timothy, verse 1, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. But this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them out away from Christ, they desire to marry and so condemn or incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith or pledge. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. A lot of stuff going on in this text. But I want you to notice that the language of family is all over it. The language of family is everywhere in verses 1 to 16. There's something about this idea of the church as a family that is very important to our role as the people of God, to our, our ministry as the people of God. And Paul is reinforcing this idea in his letter to Timothy. And remember, that's one of Paul's chief concerns in writing this text, as we saw in chapter 3, verse 15 to teach us how we ought to behave in the household of God as a pillar and a buttress of the truth. We are indeed a household. And as God's family, in God's house, we are to act in a way that is honoring to Him, in a way that respects His desire for His people. And God wants us to consider each other as family. We are family. And from that declaration, from that truth that we are a family, Paul outlines for Timothy two practical actions that should be true in the church because we are a family. Action one, if you are a family, if you are the family of God, then God's people need to treat each other like family, right? If we are family, then we need to treat each other like we would our very own family. 
In verses 1 and 2, Paul is challenging Timothy to see the people in the church at Ephesus like he would see his own family. And hear me, even those who oppose him. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, encourage younger men as you would your brother. Encourage older women as you would your mother. Encourage younger women as sisters and do this from a place of purity. Older men, Timothy, look at them like you would look at your father. Older women, look at them like you would look at them as your mother. Younger men, look at them like your brothers. Younger women, look at them like your sisters. We are a family. And as you lead this people, as you confront the false teaching in Ephesus, as you, as you structure and put in place organizationally things that help the church function like you've called it to, do not lose sight that these are your father and this is your, your father and mother in the faith. These are your brothers and sisters in the faith. You should respond to every single person that you come into contact with as if they are of your own family. When they, want, when they don't want to listen to the fact that who they've been listening to is a false teacher, encourage them as you would someone in your own family. When they oppose you because of your youth, when they oppose you because they don't think you're qualified to stand and lead the church in this way, you approach them and respond to them as if they are a member of your family. The way we treat each other in the church is meant to be influenced by the truth that we are a family because hopefully you treat your family differently, right? Hopefully we treat our family a little bit differently than we treat everyone else and hopefully for the good, right? We're talking about ideal here. Maybe you're going to come under conviction this morning for how you treat your own family, but hopefully it's a good thing that Paul is saying we should treat each other like family. Typically, when we think about how we relate to our family, we are more patient with our family. We are more gentle with our family. We are kinder to our family because we love our family. All right? Hopefully, I treat Jordan a little bit better than other women around me. Hopefully, I treat my kids better than other kids around me because they're mine. And I love them. Paul is saying that we should have that perspective toward the people of God. That we should be loving of them in the same way that we love our family. That we should be more patient with each other. That we should be more gentle with each other. That we should be kinder to each other because we are the family of God. Friends, we are not just cohabitators. We don't just live in the same house. We're not roommates. Although sometimes I feel that's the way that we look at each other. This minimizes our relationship that God has called us to in the people of God. We aren't just even co-laborers. We're not just connected by a cause, even though that's somewhat true. And we're certainly not opponents of each other, even sometimes we treat each other that way. We are a family. A family. And so we're to make time for each other. We're to care for one another. We're to serve one another because we are fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters in the household of God. Imagine 
if the people of Ephesus saw Timothy as a brother or a son in the faith instead of a threat. We don't know the full background of what's happening in Ephesus. We don't know everything that's going on, but clearly there is tension there as Timothy goes about the work that Paul has called him to, and some are resisting Timothy in that work to set things right. But imagine if the people who saw Timothy as a threat saw him as someone who cared about them, who loved them, who wanted their good, and that's why he was about this work. The whole perception of what's happening there changes. And Timothy has to remember that too because the work that he's been called to is a difficult work. But if he loves them and he knows this is there for their good, he will stick it out for the glory of God. I think about this in our own context. Imagine what would happen if our older people saw the younger people as their sons and daughters in the faith or maybe even their grandsons or granddaughters in the faith. Imagine how they would look to them. Imagine how they would want to care and provide for them. Imagine if our younger generations looked the same way at their elders in the church. Imagine that they would be grateful for faithful generations that have helped to build these buildings, who have helped to establish a record of faithful ministry in Irving that we now benefit from today, even a hundred years later. Imagine what would happen if we began to see each other as family, how our posture toward one another would change, how our language about one another would change, how our view of one another would change. In a world where the church is seen as just another entertainment venue, in a world that is promoting radical individualism and retreat, let's be revolutionary. Let's be countercultural as the church of the living God and show the world what it means to be a family that lives under the lordship of Christ. It doesn't mean that we don't disagree, but it does mean that we will work toward unity, that we will zealously defend this family for the sake of the gospel. I want you to look around this room. Everybody you see is your brother or sister in the faith. Are your mother and father in the faith? Are your son and daughter in the faith? We are a family. And from a pure heart that's devoted to the things of God, let's embrace one another as a family to accomplish the work of ministry. That's the first action. But we got to treat each other like family. Secondly, action two. If we are a family, you are to care for each other like a family. Not only will you treat each other like family, you'll care for each other like you would your family. And we see this in verses 3 to 16. Now this section is a bit more developed, and it deals specifically with the care of widows. But the care for widows flows out of this idea that we are a family. And it may seem like this is a sudden turn in Paul's writing, if not for the context of family that he's writing in. It seems like there were a number of widows, both older and younger, in the church at Ephesus in this time. And Paul is helping Timothy to know how to go about meeting their needs because they're a part of this family. 
And in this time, we all know that widows were at particular risk of being forgotten, of being lost in the fringes of society and not having a way to care for themselves. But the sheer number of widows Church of Ephesus was trying to care for had become a problem. It had raised attention because on the one hand, we want to care for these women as members of our church because we know God's heart for the widow that we've seen throughout Scripture in places like Psalm 68.5, James 1.27, Deuteronomy 27.19. It is clear that God cares for those who are helpless, who cannot help themselves. But we also know there's a limit to what the church can give. There's a limit to our resources. We can't help everyone all the time and do everything. We can't meet every single need around us. So how is it that we as a family discern how to help our families? Well, Paul uses the dynamics of family to go about answering the question of how we help widows who are a part of our family. Firstly, he says, the physical family has first importance in caring for widows. The physical family is of first importance. They have the first responsibility in caring for the widows. The first point that Paul clarifies here and how we care for the widows among us is that when it comes to providing physically for someone, their physical family has been given the primary responsibility from God. God has instituted the family as the glue of society. You know, family is not an accident. Family is not just something that we came up with as human beings. It is a part of God's design for human flourishing in this life. The family is the bedrock of society because it is through the family generally that our primary physical needs are met. So think about my own family. Jordan and I have been blessed with two incredible kids, Jude and Julia. Who is primarily responsible to make sure that those two kids have clothes, food, and a place to live? Me and her. God gave them to us. He's entrusted them to us. And we, as their physical family, have a primary responsibility to meet those needs. That's not the primary responsibility of this church. Now, if we failed in that or we were unable to do that, certainly the church would come alongside us and help us. But it is our primary responsibility to care for those children. And I think we understand that, that when you are given children, you have a responsibility to care for them. But Paul extends this responsibility generationally. Not only do Jordan and I have a responsibility to Jude and Julia, we also have a responsibility to our parents. And my parents are here, and I'm so they're going to be rejoicing that I'm preaching what I'm preaching today because they're going to hold me accountable to it one day. I have a responsibility to care for Melvin and Darlene Richard. Jordan, along with her brother, has a responsibility to care for David and Patty Walters because God has brought us into this family to make sure that we care and provide for one another. Not only do we have responsibility for our children, we have responsibility for our parents. This is part of God's design for how the family and society is to function. Look at verse 4. If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return for their parents. 
to show the kind of love and provision that they've been shown back to them. For this is pleasing in the sight of God because it's in accordance with God's design. Children and grandchildren have the first responsibility. And it's an opportunity for you to return the sacrifice of your grandmother and your mother who cared for you when you were being raised. And it's also an opportunity to display godliness. Godliness to them and godliness for those who are watching, to display sacrificial care for them, for those who cannot help themselves. Can anything be more godly than that, than to help those who are helpless? And Paul states strongly that failure to care for our elders when we could is an affront to the gospel. Look at verses 7 and 8. Command these things as well, so they may be without reproach. But if anyone, listen, does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That is some strong language. To not provide for your family, including your parents or your grandparents, is a denial of your faith. Could there be anything more ungodly than refusing to help the helpless? Could there be anything more anti-gospel than to look on someone in need and not try to help them with everything that you have? Isn't that the centerpiece of the gospel? that God looked down upon us in our helpless estate when we were lost, when we were derelict, when we had no hope, when we were on our way to a future of separation from God, and he looked down upon us with compassion and sent his son to rescue us from that which we could not rescue ourselves, that he made provision for us to meet our every need in Christ? That's the gospel, friends. And when we fail to do that, even to our own family, We are denying the faith that we claim. We are not acting in godliness. We are acting in anti-godliness. Paul says even those outside the faith are taking care of their mothers and their grandmothers, the widows among them better than you're taking care of your own. What a bad testimony for the people of God. That doesn't show the kind of care that God has for all people that he's shown you in Christ. So the physical family has primary responsibility. It's echoed again there in verse 16. There's a second point of clarification, though. After reinforcing the importance of the physical family, Paul then turns to the responsibility of the spiritual family. If the widow has no physical family, then their spiritual family is to assume that role if she is qualified. We, the church, become God's provision for her. We are her family, and she devotes herself to us as she would her family. But again, there are some qualifications here. Qualifications that God lovingly gives to encourage faithfulness among younger generations, but also to help us rightly use, rightly steward the resources that God has given to us. In order for the church to be devoted to the widow she must have evidenced devotion both to God and the people of God over a time. It's a reminder to us, friends, you're not entitled to God's help. You're not entitled entitled to the church's help. Anytime God gives and anytime he leads the church to give, it is an act 
of grace. Unfortunately, there are too many people who seem entitled or who look at entitlement with provision from God, even though they've never done anything for the church and never done anything for God. It is an act of grace from God that he would provide for any of us. God provides for those who have shown humble devotion to him. And it is not wrong for the church to allocate its resources to the faithful first. It doesn't mean that we never do anything to help the unfaithful when we can. But it's not wrong for us to allocate our resources to the faithful first. So who qualifies? What does it mean for a widow, a true widow, to be faithful and worthy of us as her family of faith to support her in this way. Well, firstly, according to our text in verses 3 and 5, she's truly a widow, meaning she has no family. Secondly, she's of a needy age. Verse 9, let her be enrolled in this program if she is not less than 60 years of age. Does that mean hard and fast 60 years of age, Jared? No, I think it's a principle, right? That at this time... When you hit 60 years old, it was unlikely that you were going to marry again. It was certainly unlikely that you were going to have children unless some Sarah moment happened. And uh, it was unlikely that you could go out and get a job. So there was a, a particular need there around this age. And I think it's up to us to, to figure out today what that threshold is of need. At what point does a woman um, who is truly a widow... Uh, beyond the ability to find help elsewhere, to remarry, to have children again, or to be able to get a job. So that's what that age means. Thirdly, according to verse 5, she has set her hope on God, truly a widow of needy age, and she has demonstrated that she has set her hope on God, as opposed to verse 6, a widow who has set her hope on the things of this world. Verse Five again, in the fourth qualification, she's committed to prayer. And then finally, as we see in verses 9 and 10, she has evidenced a life of faithfulness to the Lord. Faithfulness including being in a faithful marriage if she was ever married. Taking care of her children faithfully if she had children or of taking care of children amongst the people of God. Using her home faithfully to care for the saints and for those who are uh, in need. Uh, faithful in her service of the saints, even washing feet, and faithful to care for those who are afflicted. Essentially, she's done for others what she now needs done for her. And the people of God have recognized this, and they see that because of the way that she has loved our family, now we can do exactly what her physical family would have done, according to verse 4, and return some of that as our spiritual mother or grandmother, because this is pleasing in the sight of God. If she meets these qualifications, then the church should do everything in its power to meet her needs. And in return, the widow will continue to devote herself to the work of the church, to her now primary family, the family of God. She's going to care for us as we care for her like she would care for her own family if she had one. We are her primary family member. We care for her, she cares for us. But if a widow does not meet these requirements, then the church is not necessarily responsible for her well-being, according to Paul. Not in the same way anymore. Now, it wouldn't be 
a sermon in 1 Timothy if there wasn't something hard to understand in the text. <laughs> Jared, what is the deal with Paul's comments about younger widows? His language here seems a little bit harsh, right? Refuse to enroll younger widows, verse 11, for when their passions draw them away from Christ and they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith or another possibility of translation, that word faith is the word pledge. What does he mean here? I think the context here helps us to understand what it is that Paul is saying so that we don't just look at him as a misogynist, right? Who just doesn't like women. So what is it that he is saying here? It seems like, according to what's being set forth here, when a qualified widow began to be supported by the church, that the widow took a vow to be devoted to the family of God above any earthly family. And we see that in verse 12. There's some sort of pledge that they make of themselves to, to not pursue a physical family any longer, an earthly family any longer, but to devote herself completely to the things of the church, to the things of the family of God. And Paul says that it's unfair for us to ask that of a younger widow because she may still have earthly responsibilities. She may still have children living in her home so that she's divided. She can't give herself completely to the church because she still has responsibilities at home. And she may long and desire for an earthly family again. And that's okay. It's a good thing because God designed the family. And it's a good thing for her to find a husband and to then once again step into a, a provision from God to have an earthly family. So why ask these younger women to make a pledge they are unlikely to keep, having seen apparently already evidence of their inability to do so in Ephesus? So Paul encourages younger widows, younger widows, take advantage of the design that God has put in place, and instead of relying upon the spiritual family to meet their needs, to pursue a physical family once again. But notice, family is the way that these provisions are made. And the people of God are a family. We are to see each other as family and care for each other as family, especially when there's no physical family to speak of. The fact that we are family, the fact that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, the fact that we are spiritual mothers and fathers, spiritual sons and daughters in Christ should affect the way that we see this church, should affect the way that we see each other, and should affect the way that we care for one another because of Christ. Now, how should we respond this morning to our text? What action can we take in light of the challenge here that Paul gives to Timothy? I want to offer you just four responses this morning to think through from our text. Firstly, let's allow the truth that we are a family to shape our speech about one another. Shape our speech about one another. Notice in verse 1 that the challenge to Timothy from Paul has to do specifically with his language. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Does that mean that we never rebuke? Of course not. We're called to rebuke one another occasionally. 
But there's a different type of rebuke that comes from someone that you love versus someone that you're in competition with. Rebuking can be encouraging if it's done in the right way. Healthy families encourage one another. And I've I've been thinking about our own context. You know, this is a a passage about how to interact in a uh, multi-generational context. And you know we're blessed here at First Baptist Church of Irving because guess what? We are in a multi-generational context. There are a lot of churches around the world who only have one generation present, but we've got three, four generations present on our campus every Sunday morning. That's a blessing, but it can also be a challenge, right? Because multiple generations think about things differently, and they approach even their worship time differently. And so one of the things that we've seen here at our church occasionally is some tension around worship styles or tension around the way that we dress on Sunday mornings because you have an older generation who thinks that we should approach it one way and you have a younger generation who resents being told how to do it one way and they want their own freedom to choose to do it in a way that they think is best and honors the Lord. But imagine at this conversation about worship and this conversation about dress and other conversations like it that we are exposed to because of the the potential issues that can arise from a multi-generational church. Imagine if those conversations happen within the context of the fact that we are a family. Imagine if our older members of our church saw the younger members of our church as sons and daughters in the faith. Imagine if they saw them as grandsons and granddaughters in the faith. Don't you think that their perception of them would change a little bit? Their language about them would change a little bit? Instead of, I can't believe they worship that way, it may be this. I'm so grateful. There's a younger generation coming up that desires to worship the Lord. And I know I'm not going to be here forever. And there's someone who's going to take the legacy of this family forward for the glory of God. Instead of, I can't believe they wore shorts to church. I'm not calling anybody out. When I was growing up, this is true, when I was... When I was growing up, it didn't matter if it was Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, I could not wear shorts to church, right? Could never do it. Because it was a way that they wanted to respect the Lord and the worship of God. But what if, instead of saying, I can't believe they wore that to church, we said, I am so glad somebody got up this morning, put on clothes, and came to worship God with me. Because if they didn't put on clothes, that'd be bad. But also they could have chosen to do something else. Like so many do. They could have laid in bed. They could have watched golf. They could have went out and played baseball or something, but they chose to come here and praise the Lord. My brother or sister, my son or my daughter in the faith came to worship the Lord with me, and it's a joy to do that with them whenever I can. Imagine if the younger generation, let's see if we get so many amens now. (laughs) Imagine if the younger generation looked at that generation above them with respect and gratitude for the resources and the time they poured into this church. And imagine, instead of discounting the way that they loved to worship the Lord and the, the richness of the hymns, they sat with them and asked how God displayed his grace to them through the singing of those songs. And, and the hope that even though it might not be the style that I like or prefer, 
that being around my father in the faith, my mother in the faith, my grandmother, my grandmother in the faith is a better thing for me to hear them singing the things that they love to inspire love in me than just getting the worship style that I want every week. It's good for us. Imagine if we took their lead in making sure that we were reverent when we came to the church, knowing that we were meeting with God. Imagine what would happen if we learned from one another, if we sharpened from one another, because we're family. And even though we disagree sometimes, we love each other. And love covers a multitude of sins. If you wore shorts today, welcome. We're grateful you're here. And it's hot. It's 100 and something degrees outside, so you're cooler than I am right now. So let's let the idea of our family change our speech about one another, right? Okay. Secondly, let's be challenged this morning to consider how we are caring for our own physical families. One of the things I took away from this text today was my responsibility to my parents and our responsibility to both of our parents as a direct command from God. You know, we're preparing to take care of our kids. We're saving, we're we're thinking about, you know, college one day and that kind of stuff with our kids, but am I preparing the same way for how I'm going to take care of my parents? Because there's going to come a day where they're going to need something, right? I, I pray that my parents are like Bud Letterboard, able to live on their own for 90-something years. Um, and I praise the Lord for that good health. And I pray that, I pray that for them. But there may come a time where they need more help. They may, they need, may need more care. And we have a responsibility as their family, to talk about that and to prepare for that. How many times have we seen older people in nursing homes and rehab facilities completely abandoned by their families? I'm not saying that the decision to put your, your parent in a, a skilled nursing facility or a rehab facility is an easy one, right? And there are times when the medical needs are too great for you to be able to carry that on your own. But just because you've entrusted their care to them, their physical care to them, does not mean you get to abandon them emotionally and spiritually. You have a responsibility to care for them because that's how God's designed it, right? Don't let them succumb to loneliness and depression when he's provided for them family. I'm challenged by that. I hope you are as well. So let's, let's be challenged about how we need to care for our physical families. Thirdly, let's embrace the role of being caregivers in our spiritual family as well especially in moments when no one has, when that person does not have an earthly family, physical family, that we embrace that role as a spiritual family. And this is not just true of deacons, by the way. Deacons are not the only ones who are called to care for widows. They are called to lead in that care. But every single one of us is a minister of the gospel, right? Every one of us is called to love our brother and sister, our father and mother, our son, our daughter, and the faith. May we all take up that mantle. Certainly follow the lead of those who know the need. But don't just entrust that to one person. Let's all embrace this role to care for those who are in need, especially among our family. And finally, to the widows. It's not often we get to address widows specifically in the church, but to the widows, to the widowers, to the single who are older, I would just remind you today of your opportunity to be devoted to the work of God. If you're here, that means that God is not done with you yet. And there's still work that you can do. 
maybe some of you in this room can continue the work that we've already seen in verse 10. You can continue to care for children. You can continue to show hospitality. You can continue to wash the feet of saints. You can continue to care for the afflicted. You can continue to devote yourself to every good work as a reason for you to to live, to, to give your life to. Love this family like you would love your own family. Some of you may say, well, I'm too old to, that, to do that. Well, listen, you're not too old to pray. You're never too old to pray, to show people how to set your hope on God and to pray for the family of God. Oh, that we would have a generation of intercessors praying over our church devoted to lifting up the family of God. You have an opportunity to focus on the work of God because you don't have the same distractions, the same commitments as others do. Take advantage of the opportunity for the glory of God. And remember, how we show godliness in these moments of need is a reflection of the work of God for us. When we minister to the helpless, to the widow, to the orphan, it's a reminder to all of us of how God helped us in our helpless state when he sent his son to rescue us, to pay the penalty for our sin, and to save us. And when we fail to do those things, we deny the faith. We deny the very gospel we claim because we're not loving others like we've been loved by him. Now, I can't think of a better thing for us to do as a family than to partake of a meal together. Isn't that what families do? So this morning, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper as a demonstration of the idea that we are a family. As a reminder, this is for the family. If you are a follower of Christ, you are welcome to partake in this moment. If you're not a follower of Christ, then that means you're not a part of this family of faith. You can be, but you're not yet. So we'd ask you to not partake in this, but let the common testimony of everybody here be a statement of what we have found in Christ and an invitation to come and experience what we've experienced in Christ. For the rest of us who are in Christ, let's also remember this is for our family if you are in good standing before God, that there's no unconfessed sin in your life, that there's nothing that would tamper with the testimony that you are offering that Christ alone satisfies. Maybe you need to abstain today because there's something in your heart that would not actually give good testimony today to this act. Or maybe you need to repent of it right now. So wherever you are, would you just bow your head and make sure you're right before the Lord? as our deacons come to prepare to serve the table. Father, prepare our hearts as we prepare this table to receive the provision that you have made for us in Christ, to honor you, Father, thank you for this family of faith that you have established in Christ. Thank you for being our good Father who sent your Son to provide for us when we could not provide for ourselves. May we worship you in this moment, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Deacons.